This educational activity was developed in partnership between Cortuad and the American Society for Bone and Mineral Research, supported by an independent medical education grant from the Rare Bone Disease Consortium, represented by Alexion, AstraZeneca Rare Disease, by Ibsen and by Kiwakiran, who had no input into selection of topics or speakers. Hello, and welcome back to the Rare Bone Diseases podcast series covering highlights from ASBMR 2022. Our second podcast in the series features the clinician's perspective on highlights from the ASBMR 2022 annual meeting held September 9th to the 12th. My name is Carrie Brubaker, and joining me is Professor Eric Rush. Professor Rush is a clinical geneticist at Children's Mercy Hospital and the University of Kansas Medical Center in the United States. He is a professor of pediatrics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City School of Medicine and a clinical associate professor of internal medicine at the University of Kansas School of Medicine. Welcome, Professor Rush. Thank you, Carrie, and and hello to all the podcast listeners. So in this episode, you're offering key insights on rare bone disease data from the ASBMR 2022 annual meeting. Could you please tell us which presentations you'll discuss and why you think they're of interest to our audience? Yes, I'd love to do that. Uh, We're going to be talking about three separate presentations uh, that that really caught my attention for really different reasons. First, I'd like to talk about fibrodysplasia ossificans progressiva, or FOP. I was fortunate to listen to an oral presentation by my colleague, Dr. Eileen Shore, who is discussing the treatment landscape for FOP. Uh, FOP is a really severe condition, and we'll, we'll probably dig into this a little deeper in the podcast, but it's a really severe condition that historically has not really had anything much that we could do for it. And, and patients uh, really had a, a very long and, and very unfortunate clinical course. But in the last few years, there's been a lot of interest in FOP, and Dr. Shore really summarized the, that progress very nicely. Second, I'd like to talk about a poster that I was fortunate enough to run across uh, called Lodose Infogratinib, an oral selective FGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitor that demonstrates activity in preclinical models of hypochondroplasia, which I thought was very interesting. Hypochondroplasia is a relatively mild but relatively common skeletal dysplasia that still has uh, some significant health concerns that are related to it. There really hasn't been anything in terms of treatment that we can do for patients with hypochondroplasia. And so it's very interesting to see some, some preclinical interest in that disease state. And then third, I, I wanted to discuss an evaluation of safety and efficacy of multiple intravenous and intraosseous injections of fetal liver-derived MSCs in children with OI, the Boost to Brittle Bone Study. And this is an exploratory open-label phase one, two clinical trial. You know, osteogenesis imperfecta has been a condition where there's been a fair bit of interest for a number of years, and the therapies that are that exist and many of the therapies that are being investigated can be efficacious and can certainly improve life for people with OI, but they're not a cure. They don't actually change the underlying genetic lesion. And so cellular therapy, as, and stem cell therapy in particular, is very interesting in OI. Some of the data that's been derived in the past has maybe been a little less convincing, but I am interested and excited to start seeing some additional advances in cellular therapy for OI. But I also think that there's some caution that's advised when we're evaluating patients who are undergoing these sorts of clinical trials. Professor Rush, we appreciate your summary of those three presentations. So let's begin with first. Can you tell us more about FOP? What's known at this time about the molecular mechanisms and potential new treatment options? What did Dr. Shore present? 
Dr. Shore presented a very nice overview of FOP as a disease state. So for those of you who are listening may know a lot more about FOP than I do even, but if you don't, if you're not familiar with FOP, this is a condition that can present with congenital anomalies, but really also presents with early onset heterotopic ossifications. So what happens is, is people may have a spontaneous, painful, soft tissue swellings that, that we call flare-ups. And in the space of those flare-ups, we'll see development of cartilage and heterotopic bone, the ossification that can happen in those locations. And the problem is, is once that heterotopic ossification occurs, it doesn't go away. And so over time, patients will develop more and more of this bone that's replacing soft tissue. And so patients can get restriction of movement as a result of this ossification, and this can impact things like joint mobility, and it can even impact things like swallowing, speaking, respiratory status, and oftentimes uh, what eventually happens to these patients is they get uh, significant respiratory insufficiency, and that may be the reason why they pass, and in many cases can pass quite young. And so this is a very severe condition that really warrants a lot of our attention, and so it's, I'm very pleased to see a lot more interest in that condition. And we know that FOP is, is caused in nearly all cases by one specific change in a gene called ACVR1. And this is something that can be diagnosed on genetic testing or really quite easily these days. And so if a person is suspected of having FOP, then we can make a diagnosis uh, pretty readily with a combination of, of clinical evaluation and molecular testing. Unfortunately, that's not always recognized very early, and sometimes patients will have significant flares and will already have a heterotopic ossification by the time this is really known. There are a number of therapies that are under investigation in FOP, and, and the first is one called paloverotene. That's the furthest along in the development pathway. Uh, and this is a retinoid RAR gamma agonist. And what it does is it reduces BMP signaling. And we think that reducing BMP signaling will reduce the, the volume of heterotopic ossification. And there's a mounting amount of evidence that suggests that that's correct. There are also some other compounds that are in various stages of development that in many cases work in sort of the same way, but just through, through slightly different pathways. Um, for instance, there's one called REGN2477. And this is an active NA inhibitor. And by blocking active NA, you can also stop the formation and the growth of heterotopic ossification of these individuals. Uh, so that's interesting as well. There are several other agents that can include things like ALK2 inhibitors. And ALK2 is in the same pathway as BMP signaling. And so those ALK2 inhibitors may work in the same way as, as something like paloverotene. So there's very, very much interest in developing agents for this. And so it was very exciting to hear Dr. Shore, who is an international expert in FOP, to be able to articulate all of what's going on. So it's a very exciting time in that disease process. Thank you for sharing these insights on fibrodysplasia ossificans progressiva from the annual meeting. Let's turn to your second presentation selection on hypochondroplasia. We know that there are no disease-targeting treatments available to patients at this time, but there is preclinical progress in therapeutic development. Uh, that is correct. There's a lot of progress being made in a number of these uh, skeletal dysplasias. And in the case of hypochondroplasia, you know, this has been a this is this has been a skeletal dysplasia where there really hasn't been as much focus. Part of that is probably because it's it's maybe a little less severe than many of the skeletal dysplasias that we talk about. Doesn't mean it's not important. And so we know that hypochondroplasia still remains an important target. And so I was very excited to see some attention to this. And so we know that infragratinib is a compound that is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor for FGFR. 
And that's very important. That's something that we certainly want if we're looking for a treatment for patients with conditions like achondroplasia or hypochondroplasia, where we know FGFR3 activity is significantly upregulated. And so if we can attenuate that in some way, that's extremely helpful. And so in this case, infogratinib was given to a mouse model of hypochondroplasia. And part of this that was interesting to me was that, gosh, now there's a mouse model of hypochondroplasia. And that was something we didn't have before. And so sometimes when we're developing things in, in preclinical developments, and I say we, I don't do this for a living, but the people who do, they have model organisms. And in some cases, those model organisms such as mice are on the shelf, we just have them. But in this case, you had to make one. So you had to make a hypochondroplasia mouse, which I thought was very interesting and exciting. So what happened is, is they gave infogratinib to these mice who had hypochondroplasia, and they gave this in a couple of different ways. First, they gave it intermittently. So they kind of did pulse dosing. And then they also tried to give it another way, which was giving it daily. And so what they found is when they gave it pulse dose kind of intermittently, it didn't really seem to help very much in terms of growth. But when they gave it on a regular basis, when they gave these mice the infogratinib daily, it really seemed to improve their growth. And that's good. You know, we're excited to see improved growth. But one of the things that also caught my eye is it looked like there was better proportion to these mice as well. And so one of the things that we know about patients with FGFR3-related skeletal dysplasias is there's disproportion. These tend to be the, the short limb conditions. And so if you can make them grow, that's fine, but it's even better if you can make them grow in a way that is more proportional. These are certainly interesting updates on research in the area of hypochondroplasia and other FGFR3-related diseases. And I'm certain that our audience will be looking forward to see these moving forward in development. So in our first podcast series, we heard about another study on osteogenesis imperfecta. In your third selected work, mesenchymal stem cells were derived from fetal liver cells and utilized in two OI patients. Can you tell us more about this treatment approach and its potential impact for patients? I'd love to. So osteogenesis imperfecta is one of the more common skeletal disorders. We think probably about one in 20,000 people have osteogenesis imperfecta. And osteogenesis imperfecta is a disease state that's near and dear to my heart. I, I am fortunate to care for a number of people with OI, and I certainly enjoy doing so. We have some therapies for OI that are either being utilized now in standard of care or are being investigated. And these are promising therapies. They certainly can help people with OI. What they don't do is correct the underlying genetic lesion in OI. So we're not taking away the OI when we're giving people things like you know, small molecule compounds or monoclonal antibodies. Even though they may be very effective in, in treating it, it's still not a quote-unquote cure. So there is some interest and has been some interest in stem cell therapies as a possible strategy to actually promote sort of osteogenesis, healthy osteogenesis in OI. There have been some studies that have suggested that in some patients with particularly severe OI, stem cell therapy may be helpful, but it's really kind of unclear. And they've, they've been burdened by some confounds and burdened in many cases by low numbers of patients in the cohort. But in this case, they were able to give uh, allogenic human fetal liver-derived MSCs to children who were one to five years of age. And these were children with either OI type 3 or OI type 4. And so what the authors reported was that over the course of these patients' clinical experience in that time, they did experience some improvements in quality of life based on some validated measures called the POD-C and the PEDS-QL. They also had increases in their bone density and apparent increases in their height relative to the norms for age. 
one of the things that I think is challenging when you have these sorts of studies with very small numbers of people is it's hard to know what's really the treatment that you're trying to show works and what is actually just the natural history of OI. And I think that's challenging in this study as well is, yes, there did seem to be some improvement, but sometimes we see that anyway in people with OI. You know, So OI is not necessarily always a degenerative condition. And sometimes patients that look quite severe when they're born, even by the time they're a couple of years of age, they don't look quite as severe. And so this is a, a disease with a really variable natural history. And I'm not saying that this therapy doesn't work or couldn't work. It may very well work. What I'm saying is that in these sorts of cellular therapies where we have small numbers of patients, I just think we have to be cautious when we're evaluating sort of new preliminary data, especially if it's not for very long periods of time. But having said that, I will be keenly interested in how this group proceeds with this. And, and as they start having more patients and longer times that they're following these patients, I'll be very excited to see what we learn from stem cell therapy in patients with osteogenesis imperfecta. Professor Rush, thank you very much for your insights on this presentation on OI and the other two that you discussed with us earlier. As we know, the ASBMR 2022 annual meeting was full of activity, engagement, and such novel developments in rare bone disease. Is there anything more that you would like to share about your experience at Congress? I would. I would like to share more. This ASBMR this year had a lot of really nice energy to it. And I was certainly excited to be there in person. I was excited to, to see a lot of old friends and colleagues, excited to learn a lot. And I was not disappointed. I was able to do all of those things. And so it really was a very good Congress. One of the things that I think is sort of a hidden gem at the ASBMR annual meeting are the meet the professor sessions. Oftentimes they're done in midday, kind of right before lunch. And there are always eminent people in the field who are, are providing the, the meet the professor facilitation. And I went to a couple of them. And one that I thought was particularly interesting and stimulating was led by my colleague, Dr. Brendan Lee from Baylor College of Medicine. And he facilitated a meet the professor. He called it meet the professors because a lot of us were OI experts there. And it was a very stimulating meeting that talked about sort of the future of OI care. And I think everybody had a, a really nice exchange. I think it was a lot of energy being able to interact face to face. And, you know, overall, I think we left with a, a lot of optimism for the future of care of patients with OI. And so I would, you know, encourage anybody who's listening to this podcast who has not experienced one of those Meet the Professor sessions to strongly considering doing so at, at ASBMR 2023 in Vancouver. Professor Rush, many thanks again for these meaningful insights. At this time, I would also like to thank our listeners, and we invite you to explore our other episodes in this Rare Bone Diseases podcast series, covering highlights from ASBMR 2022. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Courtoed Independent Medical Education and by the American Society for Bone and Mineral Research. Please visit courtoed.com and asbmr.org for more information.